The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Tonight we are reading out of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. So if you want to go ahead and find that in your Bible, and thanks to everybody that's watching online. So it goes... Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he has chosen us, in, he, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you all were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. And may God bless the reading of his word. Let me start with just, do you know what my favorite word in that scripture that Rachel just read was? Lavished. Have any of you ever been lavished by somebody? Um, by the look on your face, I don't think you know what I mean by that. But has anybody ever just lavished you with attention, with love, with gifts, with um, a meal? I mean, where you were just like, wow, this has been a blessed day of just being lavished. Uh, well, that's later on in the teaching. I just couldn't get past that. Just hearing Rachel say it, I was like, oh, that's, I just want to feel that when I go to church. I want to, I want to, when I walk in, like I was, I was talking to Olivia and Lauren before the gathering, and I think I mentioned it to a few other people today, because when something gets burning in my heart, I have a hard time just keeping it in there. But I don't want it to take three worship songs or four worship songs on a Sunday morning for us to feel lavished. I want us to come in the first note of the first song, and we already feel lavished. And so that just changes the way we approach the room. Now, again, I know we have a, an eclectic church from people with different denominations. But must I say from the bottom of my heart, I can't wait to tap a little bit more into the Pentecostal side of our church. Um, there are things that I love about the, the things that we're good at, and I, there's things that I love about it, like truth and integrity. But when you and I feel lavish, we just don't sit. We smile, we laugh, we embrace, 
we talk about it. Like, can you believe that I got did it? I mean, it just goes through all these things. I don't know if you've ever had a really special Christmas where you just felt like, man, the gifts were just that. And you just feel that way. And so that's kind of where we're heading. But let me start back with Acts 19. Let me just out of curiosity, have any of you in the room tonight actually watched on Facebook this week? All right, cool. A couple of you. Um, that's nice. Um, the other question is, is how many of you, this is your first time here? A few of you, right? Okay. So there's a few of us that we're, so let me review just really quickly, but I think it's beneficial because tonight we finally get into Ephesians where we have um, been mostly in Acts chapter 19, which if we go by church history, it is most likely that Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, not in Acts 19 or Acts 20 when he's talking to the elders in Ephesus. He's writing to the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 28, which is when he's chained and in prison, and he's writing all these letters to churches that he loves now as an older man. And so it could be decades later from the time that we've been reading now in the book of Acts chapter 19. But one of the things that I believe is the purpose of the of Luke defining Acts 19 so articulately for us, of the things that happened and the things that he did, and the letter of Ephesians, I believe that Paul and Luke and the power of the Holy Spirit were trying to show us as clearly as possible what the church is supposed to do in a powerful city. Ephesus was a powerhouse city, comparable to New York, London, Paris, other places that would be around the world where once it happens in those cities, it happens everywhere else. It's where the major banks were. It was major worship. It was the spiritual hub of the world for the most part. There were so many things. It was the shipping hub of the world. The majority of trade going into Asia Minor was coming through there. It was a prosperous city, and it was such a city that Rome saw it as a favored city, and they gave them lots of freedoms. That's why at the end of Acts 19, we were talking about the riot, the, the clerk or the mayor, so to speak, told them to calm down because he knew if a riot was on their resume, Rome would tighten up the grip and they enjoyed their freedom and their prosperity. But some things that we learn out of this is, what does Jesus expect from me? In Acts 19, we begin to see what Paul was teaching and what Paul was doing and saying to them, learn this, do this, so that we now know what it looks like to be an obedient church in a powerhouse city being led by a powerful God. So the four things that we talked about that Paul did was that he, he made disciples. He went in and found the spiritually willing, and they ended up being 12 of them, which I think is pretty amazing. Went into a Jewish synagogue, found 12 that were listening, started to teach them, laid hands on them, baptized them, because they hadn't been discipled since John the Baptist decades earlier. And so he finds them, tells them more about Jesus, and starts teaching in the synagogue until other Jews get upset. And so rather than fighting against the antagonist, he goes, rents a room, and teaches those that want to listen. And within three years, the power of Ephesus is challenged. The temple of Artemis, the economics the, the idolatry, the sexuality of the city was so much so that Demetrius says Paul is teaching something that everybody has heard and now we're losing money because we're not selling as many statues of Artemis. So in three years, focusing on disciples, 
with power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was on him so much that handkerchiefs and aprons that he had had were healing people. And then there were other displays of great power, like if that's not enough, that were unwritten by Luke, that are alluded to, that were like, wait a minute. So he's discipling with intentionality in an insane amount of time. And he's doing powerful displays that the Holy Spirit's doing through him. He's not doing it. The Holy Spirit is doing it through him. But yet he's focusing on their words about God. He's shaping their theology in a city that had all different types of theology. And then we really ended Acts 19 on this fact that they had a massive public recognition of the gospel. So much so that when the riot happened and all these people were gathered in the theater, Paul is saying, let me in. And the other Christians around him and other leaders around him were grabbing a hold of him saying, no, it's not good for you to go in there. But he's like, let go of me. Let me in there. Like, I have a chance to talk about Jesus to all of them. That's the fire and the tenacity that was in him. So as we look through Acts 19, the big word we walked away with yesterday was, is that when the church is focused on discipleship, and lives in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we have right thinking about God, we disrupt the city that we're in. When we're actually living the right way, it changes the spirit of a city, which we talked about a little bit, and I would encourage you guys to go back. But they had a great disturbance. But the thing that motivated me for our church family was this. When they were being accused, they couldn't find any accusations that would stick. They were free from accusations. They had a clear presentation of the gospel. And they also had a very compelling message. The quality of their life was superb. And I love this. We read this out of 1 Peter. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Paul was pretty bold, but yet he was soft-hearted in Acts 19. And you read into Acts chapter 20, you see him multiple times when he's talking to people about Jesus, it says he had tears. He wept. And I wonder when the last time we as a church, we were thinking about the great love of God and our love for people and and our desire for them to understand the truth of Jesus, that we actually wept while we were talking to them. That was what Paul was doing In the city of Ephesus. So when Jesus really shows up in his church, there's a massive disruption. So now here's the letter of Ephesians. So here we go. Most people um, actually, like I said, believe that Paul wrote this in Acts chapter 28 as an old man chained to a guard. And within a couple of years of being chained to the guard, getting ready to be crucified himself, um, we began to find that um, it actually got the message of the gospel all the way to Caesar's palace. Not the casino, but the actual Caesar of that day. And it was the place where the gospel ultimately went to, which began to shape and change the entire Roman world. But one of the things that I think was on Paul's heart is that there is a lot of energy and excitement around something new. But once something gets up and going and there's momentum and people start attending and people have different beliefs and different cultures, the older something gets, the harder it is to maintain unity. And I can tell you this from a fact. In the first two years of our church, when there were less than 30, 40 people coming to it, and there weren't multiple churches, and there was very few ethnic diversities amongst us and very few economic diversities amongst us, it was a lot easier to pastor this church. 
because everybody was just excited to be in Baltimore. We didn't even know that we shouldn't be excited to be here. We had a, a, a calling in our life, and we knew that we were supposed to be in Baltimore, but we hadn't tasted the spirits of this city yet. And we started very quickly to taste the spirits of the city, but we had a group of people around us that was very much alike, and it was so much easier. I didn't have people questioning the decisions I was making very often. It was, it was like, yeah, we're going to do this. We don't know what we're doing, but we're going to go do it. And, and we just started inviting people into the chaos of our early church. And everybody expected it to be chaos, or they left, <laughs> um, which was very common in that day. But, the, but, where, but what I'm finding is, is I believe that Paul is so aware of the challenges that the city of Ephesus was facing because they were now attracting Jew and Gentile alike, they had the economic elite and the, and the city poor. They had the educated and the uneducated. And not only that, they had people that had never been given a voice. Women were attending church. I don't know if you guys realize this, but this was a first. They were allowed to come in and worship and, 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 and celebrate and be taught and to learn and to grow to use their gifts. Slaves were worshiping with their masters. And like we're going to hear in just a moment as I'm going to bring this back up. But who was Paul before he started writing all these letters? Who was Paul before he started going on all these missionary journeys? He was actually known by another name named Saul, and he had actually been killing Christians. So just imagine Paul rolls into your town to tell you about Jesus, and he had killed your parents. Or he had killed or was a part of killing your family or cousin, a distant relative that still lived in Israel. And he's now walking up to you and standing in front of you, humble, broken, weeping over the marvelous, lavished love of God in his life. That's where we find ourselves at the beginning of this letter to the Ephesians. So let me start back with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Because had it been Paul's will, he'd still been killing Christians. But it was God's will that he was different. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, we say these words a lot in church, and I hope that after tonight, that when you hear them, you hear them differently from this time forward. But Paul says to them, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Before I talk to you about grace, I want to give you another overview of Ephesians because tonight I'm going to strike some nerves in some of you, but I want you to know that we're going to get to the rest of it. This is a letter and not all the thoughts are complete yet. Chapter 1 is an incredible work of theology, but we're going to come across verses that have split denominations tonight. There is one verse in Ephesians we're going to read in just a moment that literally has started dozens of denominations because everybody's trying to figure out how to interpret it. But I don't think that was Paul's intent to be dry, reformed theology and so to speak where people were like, well, what does that word mean? What's the intent? Because it is in the middle of the longest run-on sentence I could find in Scripture. There is so much that Paul is trying to say about who we are but the letter of Ephesians, I've talked to you about, is in two parts. There's a theology part, and then there's a practice part. It's divided in half. 
But I want to give you another imagery tonight. Because what I feel like will happen, if you're faithful at reading Ephesians every day, or at least getting through the book every few days, you will find that it feels this way. It feels like Paul is in an art museum of God's story from past, present, and future. It's almost like as if Paul is this curator walking around saying, let me show you God's grace. Let me show you how peace comes to that. And then it's like he goes into the room. This is about the father. And then he goes into another room. He's like, this is about the son, not S-U-N, the S-O-N, Jesus Christ, and all that came in and through him. And then it's like there's another room you go into. It's about the spirit. And then it's about who we were and what we wrestle against. And then how we get victory over it. And then you go into a room where it's like, look at how people that are very different from each other are now interacting with one another. And another room is like, look how marriages can be at peace. And then he's in another room like, look how slaves and masters can have a new relationship. Look how we can fight against the evil in this world. And so if we can allow ourselves to slow ourselves down and take a walk through Ephesians, not a speed read through Ephesians, and we allow ourselves to park on the actual punctuation marks in the letter, I think we're going to find that there is going to be an amazing movement of God's Spirit in our soul, and this book's going to become more and more alive. Now, there's so many things that I want to talk about tonight that I can't spend as much time on each point as I just did the introduction. So here it is. Let's start with the word grace. Grace has generally, in church history, been defined as God's undeserved favor. Here's my favorite word. He lavishes his kingdom on us out of his faithfulness to us. It is a tie-in to an inheritance that we shouldn't have access to. There is an inheritance waiting for us that is beyond our wildest imaginations that we don't deserve. But it's also something for today. And so most of the early part of this letter to the church in Ephesus is about how God's grace moves in us now, not how God's grace moves in us after Jesus comes back. And I think it's really important that we begin to understand that because if we receive this lavished favor of God and we truly taste it, it's going to create in us a church that becomes contagious because our souls long for this lavish love. We long for it. Most of our relationships leave us dry, leave us wanting more, leave us desiring for, why can't you serve me better? Why, why do I feel like I'm doing all the work in this relationship? But yet we have a God that, that through grace breaks the boundary of our comprehension of what love can look like. God breaks the cycle of sin in our life that traps us. God does that. The things that we are born into and then the things that we choose for ourselves, God, through his grace, can totally change that around. Remember, who's writing this letter? Who knows better about God redirecting a life when you're on a path going the wrong way other than Paul. He thought he was theologically right with God by killing people. And in the midst of thinking, I'm right, I have every right to do this, I am defending the temple, I am defending God, he realized I was wrong, 
and totally went the other direction and wasn't just a good person in the church. He became an apostle. And if you don't know what an apostle means, you have to wait for Ephesians chapter 4. So the things that we're born into and the things that we invite on ourselves are all things that God's grace can break. And I want to make that very clear distinction. Some of you in this room have fights that you didn't choose. You didn't pick where you were born. You didn't pick the family you were born into. The older we get, we find that God gives us freedoms of choice and we begin to, ha- we begin to have the opportunity to choose some of the people in our life. But some of our circumstances have been dictated by others. God's grace can break the bonds of other people's troubles on you. And God's grace can also break the troubles you've invited on yourself. Some of us can be like, why hasn't God delivered me from this? Well, why do you keep choosing it? Why do we keep inviting this trouble into our life? Why do I keep running after these same things? And God's grace has a way of disrupting all of that. Grace can take people like Paul who were murderers and make them apostles, but grace can also take somebody that is broken in all different forms and make them new. See, this is the thing. The lavish love of God doesn't make good people better. The lavish love of God makes bad people holy. I mean, I, I, can, can, you, can you begin to wrap your mind around that? When we accept Jesus into our life, we don't just get a couple of steps better. We're not just progressing a little bit like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm a little bit better. I'm, I'm a gooder person, right? I, I, I'm having these, these I, I'm not as, I don't, I don't cuss anymore, right? Or I don't do other vulgar things. I mean, like, no, when you have an encounter with God through Jesus Christ, you are holy and dearly loved. Despite the things you had no control over and despite the choices that you make. Grace. It's an amazing concept. And here's the thing that I love about Paul's story. The more that you resent God, watch out, the bigger things you could do for his church. Think about the people in your life right now that, I mean, my mom would say are like fingernails on a chalkboard to you. Think about the person that you fear. Think about the person that you know is leading the gang in your community. Think about the person in your life that is the greediest, most self-centered, self-absorbed person that you know, and imagine their kingdom potential. Because if they have an encounter to the Father, in and through Jesus Christ, that is poured over by the Holy Spirit, they can do not just the 180, they can go from the worst to holy in a moment. And it's amazing at what God can do. One of the people that I can't wait for most of you to meet is the man in Guatemala that we support. Um, Carlos Vargas started Hope of Life International. Carlos Vargas, as a kid that had to drop out of school to support his family, had two goals in his life. He wanted to marry an American blonde woman, and he wanted to be rich. And so he came to America to start a company and married Cheryl, who's a blonde, beautiful woman, 
and, um, and he thought his life was complete. And so he went out and he ended up landing a contract with Kohl's and Walmart to sell special jewelry that he was importing and became very wealthy. And it wasn't until his younger brother came to the States, had an encounter with Jesus in the wonderful state of Texas, went to greet him in Rhode Island and introduced him to Jesus Christ. He accepted Jesus Christ, but yet he still had two priorities was to love his beautiful blonde wife and to continue to make money, but he was not interested in really growing in his faith in Jesus Christ. And it wasn't until he became so sick that, um, that he, um, his hands and his feet wouldn't work, and he was in so much pain that he decided to die in Guatemala rather than the U.S., and so he went back to Guatemala, went back to the house of his family, and was sitting on the porch and was unable to move and a girl with a blind older man walked up to him because they were poor and asked for money, and the only thing he had was money. And so he couldn't even get into his pocket, so he had to tell the little girl there was money in his front pocket, and she went into his front pocket, pulled out the cash, and handed it to the blind man, and they walked away. And that day, Carlos Vargas looked at God, and he says, if you will heal me, I promise you, I will do everything I can to set people free. Now, I don't know, 20-some years later, he's well. He's taken an acre of land in a floodplain where he started a retirement home for this older man and has now expanded it to over 2,000 acres of land where he now has an entire village he calls the Village of Transformation, which has hundreds of children, not just in an orphanage, they're placed with a family. There's a mom and a dad and eight kids in every house, and every day they eat dinner around the table. It's required. They go to church together. They worship the Lord together. There's now dozens and dozens of senior adults in special needs care. There's senior adults that are just now in, um, like, um, that can kind of take care of themselves, and so it's like a retirement home. And they now have what's called Kelly's House, which solely works to save the lives of special needs children, kids that are, have Down syndrome, kids that struggle with epilepsy, kids that, str- with all different, that have been abused so severely they're physically in, unable. And had he not said yes to God, these kids would be dying on mountainsides all over Guatemala. And so now there's nearly 100 children that have special needs that are being cared for. And that's just the beginning of a man that looked at God and said, I want to be an instrument of your love. So heal me. I am no longer going to be selfish. I want to be about other people. And his story is still being written today. I shared this the first night. I'm going to share it now. But his influence in Guatemala has now grown so much. When I was sitting across his patio table talking about the need for the high school in our village and in the villages surrounding it for the 153 kids that don't have high school education, he stopped me five minutes in the conversation, looked at his phone, pulled up the minister of education and called him on the phone. That is something that only God can do. And I believe that God doesn't want to just do that in Guatemala. Let me just say this. God's already doing it in Baltimore. Why don't we want to get on the train? Let's all engage in it. God is doing miraculous things in our city. Imagine what it could happen if we all fully dove in to to this lavished love of God. Grace is not a concept or a theological term for us to understand. 
to pull from Star Wars if I can. Grace is a force that needs to be awakened in the church. Grace is a force. It isn't a theological concept of how God saved us. Yes, that is true, but what it does is it pushes us to this miraculous power of God that shows love to us that we just don't deserve. But too many times, because we're so good or we're so control of ourselves, we fail to see that our grace is actually all God. We feel like, ah, I'm really pretty good. And so we limit the capacity of our understanding because we already have a higher view of ourselves than we ought to. But one of these days when we see Jesus face to face and we get to meet the Father, we get to see what the Spirit's really like, I promise you we're not going to feel really good about ourselves until Jesus wipes those tears away and he tells us to get up. There's an incredible amount of things that God does. And this is the thing that I want us all to realize in here. Because of the love of God and his grace, we're all saints. We're all saints. Let's think about some people in the Bible here just for a minute. Moses was a murderer. Paul was a murderer. One of the greatest saints after Scripture is who? St. Augustine. Who was St. Augustine before Jesus? He was a sex addict, to call it simply. He had so many women and so many places, so many mistresses. He had children out of wedlock. And there's even moments where after his salvation and his falling in love with God, that he had women coming up to him and tapping him on the shoulder and trying to reintroduce themselves to him. And he's like, no, that's not who I am anymore. And what ended up happening in St. Augustine? He's now a saint in the church history. Because God can take somebody that is a sex addict and turn them into a saint that has written things that has inspired the church. So I'm just saying to all of us in here, I don't care what our situation is, the outcome of us grasping what Paul is talking about is holiness, sainthood, being free of guilt, free of shame, free of anything that's ever bound us up. That's what this grace that Paul is introducing here at the very opening of this. And the thing that I think is also interesting is, what is the fruit of grace? What's the next two words? And peace. When we understand the grace of God, we get peace. Now, this isn't just peace, like um, if I was in some sort of talent show and at the end I'm like, I just want world peace, right? That's not, this is true shalom. This is Paul speaking from a Jewish context, I believe, with a deeper understanding of what the word peace is. And that's Romans 8, read it. That's, that's shalom. That's what the earth is longing for. That's what humanity is longing for. It's what God's desires to renew the earth. It is a total peace. So where there's no more thorns in our gardens, no more rats in our alleys, and there's no more people shooting at each other. Total peace. The outcome of people encountering the grace of God is the true peace of God. Now let me move on. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. Praise to the God. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us, and this is this great verse that's divided denominations, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one, capitalized O, he loves. This passage shouldn't just be about theological words. Paul starts out with this general introduction of praise being to God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then starts a sentence that doesn't stop until verse 14, where he's talking about God in the past, God in the present, and God's future plans. He's talking about our understanding, but all of this is a song This isn't Paul giving a lecture. This is him literally, arms probably raised with a guard chained to him, chained to him. And because of the lavish grace of God in his life, he's saying, praise be to the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in the heavenly realms. This isn't just a reading that he's doing to this early church. He's giving them words to confess their praise to God. He also talks in these verses that are coming about the ways that all of the Trinity was involved. But it's about joy. So here, let me start out. Verses 3 through 6 is specifically about the object of the run-on sentence. Now, let me just impress a few of you that have done some of my um, editing of my documents. I generally don't know sentence structure. Nouns, verbs, adverbs, pronouns, all that stuff. I am not known for a literary genius. I am not known for even being accurate when I talk about it. But let me just tell you two things that I learned about this run-on sentence. There is an object, and there is a preposition. The object of this run-on sentence is our Father in heaven. Everything that goes on in this run-on sentence is about the lavished love of a father in heaven that saw us in the condition that we were in and could not stand it and sent his son into the world to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. The object of the praise is God. I I mentioned this a few moments ago, but sometimes I, I lament a little bit because... I know we're in a dark city. I know that we're caring. I I look into the faces of many of you, and many of you are faithful. I know what you've been through, the battles that you've faced over what you believe, the battles that you've faced in your physical health, your mental health, your spiritual health. I know many of your stories. And so I know when you come in many times, your posture is just beaten down. And and it's like, I just want it to be true is basically what our nonverbal communication is saying. But if we truly do understand what the Father has done, no matter what opposition, no matter what we're facing, we can stand up. We can come in with a sense of joy, a sense of celebration. And sometimes I lament the fact that it takes us three or four worship songs to really get to singing. Now, I also know that we have service at 9 a.m., And that's not generally an hour where we're like, yeah, let's get it, right? You know, Um, that's not generally the time that we're thinking, oh, let's let's make this like a club, right? 
or a sporting event, because I go clubbing all the time, and you guys know that. Man. It's like... All right. Concerts. Some of us really are even struggling with adjusting our schedules to come to corporate gatherings. Some of us are struggling um, because we find more excitement in going to our favorite coffee houses or brew houses than we do coming to church. Um, And if we understand the grace of God, we won't make those struggles. Because when something that you're excited about is presented to you, you generally adjust your schedules and you go for it. So if church isn't something that you're excited about, it could be one. Remember, this book and letter has a lot in it about church leadership and accountability. So it's not just about the church. It's about the leaders of the church. And so if we're not doing a good job of discipling you, then it's no wonder sometimes that we're not getting where we need to go. But for tonight, the understanding is is that if we all get the grace of God, there should be a joy that's unquenchable. Um, One of the joys of Ginger and I when we helped start a church in the Charlotte, North Carolina area were two boys named Ocean and North who asked their parents when they were told they were going to Disney World if they could come back on Saturday because they didn't want to miss church on Sunday. Now, how many of you would give up airline tickets to your favorite destination in Europe to be back at church on Sunday because you just can't miss church, but yet you really want to go to Rome, right? So what is he saying here? Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Do you know what? I think Paul is being very basic here. He is saying to us, we praise God because he's blessed us. I don't think it's going to be that much more difficult for me to communicate, but we come ready to sing because we already know we're blessed. He goes on in verse 4 to say, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now let's be honest, because we didn't choose anything about coming into this world. God chose it all. And I really believe this is a lot of what Paul's speaking to here. You didn't pick your race. You didn't pick the continent you were born on. You didn't pick the family you were born into. You didn't even get to pick your name unless you moved here and changed it. Right? But everything about our origin is his choice for us. If you were born into a wealthy family, his choice. Born into a poor family, his choice. All of it was his choice for you. But we praise God because through his grace we realize that his plan is good and it includes us. Listen to this. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted into sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure, which really isn't, I, don't, I, don't want, I want to define pleasure, delight and joy in choosing. It wasn't like, oh, that's a nice piece of candy. That's good. It brought me some pleasure. But no, it's like you getting a chance to go and seeing a child and like, no, you're mine type of pleasure. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us. I love what 1 John 3 says, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. You wonder why I got that word? 
that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that they did not know him. But I love the confidence of John here saying, look, God has lavished us as his children into his family. We are blessed. And that is what we are. We're nothing less. I mean, if you come into church and you feel like something other than the blessed son or daughter of God, then somebody has lied to you. It could be the spirit of the city that we're fighting against. It could be somebody in your life that is talking you down, oppressing you. It could be yourself fighting against your own desires, wanting to go a different way. But we are his. Do we tonight is the question. You can write this in your journal and meditate on it. Do we know how much we're really loved by God? Because the object of this sentence that Paul is giving this rich theology in, all of the object of this sentence is all about how much God in heaven loves us and all that he's done to show us that. We need to come into our gatherings ready to praise him for being a blessing. We need to go to our dinner tables with our family and friends, into our growth communities, small group life, walking in, saying to one another, you are a lavish son of God. You are a lavish daughter of God. And if you came in believing anything else, then you need to check that at the door. Because this is who we are. And if you're a leader of one of our growth communities in here tonight, could you please start that the next time you see people coming into your growth community? We need to be reminded of our identity. All right, that's about the Father. The next few verses are about the Son. Starting in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were all chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So what kind of work does God do through the Son? I mentioned to you that I believe that the Father in this sentence is the object, and I believe Jesus is the preposition. Now that's a little hard to understand because we're going to start focusing on Jesus and we want him to be what it's all about, but I want, to, I want to help you understand what I think Paul was talking about here, because it's in Christ that we have all of our spiritual blessings. Everything is brought to unity in Christ. The inheritance only happens in Christ, which is part of the reason why Paul's in chains right now, because he's preaching a message of exclusivity. He's saying to everybody in a Gentile city like Ephesus and Corinth, He's been preaching that, oh, you know, all of your idols, God can't be inhabited by those. All of your temples, you can't, God is bigger than all your temples. You know what? The only place where God can live is in you. And it's only through Christ. So he's in chains because of this message. Because he was crying over it, weeping over it. And he believed it so much so he was willing to be chained up for it. 
It had radically changed his life. In the New Testament, there are 90, over 90 times where the words in Christ appear, which if I'm understanding sentence structure right, that's generally a way a preposition shows itself in a sentence, in Christ. But in the letter to Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus, it's said 13 times. So what do I feel like the Apostle Paul was saying to the church of Ephesus when he used the word in, I-N? What was he saying? I believe this is about location. It's literally almost geographic, if not spiritually geographic. Let me give you an example. I can say to you tonight, I am teaching you. But if I come back and I say, I'm teaching you in the church, where are you? You're inside of something. So I'm not, it's, it's, it's true that I'm teaching you, but I could be teaching you anywhere. I could be teaching you outside, in a tent, on a boat, on a plane, in a train, wherever. It could be anywhere, right? It could be like a Dr. Seuss fable. It could be all of that. But Paul is specifically telling them that everything that has been talked about God only happens when you and I are in Christ. All of it. So as we go through the book, if there's a promise... It's attached to and in Christ. If there's a truth, it's attached to and in Christ. And some of us tonight might be feeling like the promises of God are not true. So let me tell you, it's most likely that you're not in Christ. I believe Paul is specifically talking to the church in Ephesus about a change in location because they were used to being into everything. They had every form of spirituality in that generation. And there were even seasons of time when the sailors would come just to port in the city for the month of festival around um, the temple of Artemis just for the ability to be in relationship with the temple servants, which were all women. And because there's kids in the room, I'm just going to leave it at that. And so when he's talking to them about how we get the lavish love of God, I believe they're identifying with going into things and being left empty and being left wanting. And he's saying to them, if we want this lavish love of God, it only comes to us in Christ. There's so much of this in and out in the Old Testament. And let me just remind you of a couple of stories that to the Jewish people, they would have firmly understood. They knew what it was like to be in slavery in Egypt. But they also knew the freedom of God's promised land. They also knew what it was like to be near the presence of God because they didn't have the presence of God everywhere. They carried him around in a box or in a tent. And the presence of God would shine over them, sometimes as a cloud, sometimes as a fire. But so much of their story was about being in and being out. And so he's changing the status. So this is what I'm going to ask for you to help prepare for the next several nights that we meet together. Will you go through your Bible or your electronic Bible and find all of the 13 in Christ? Highlight them, circle them, 
and then begin to see how the promises of God unfold around that. And so there's another a phrase here that is translated in two different ways about Jesus. There's the by Jesus or through Jesus. So it's in Jesus is geographic, like I'm in him. And then there's these other references in the letter of Ephesians that are like by Christ or through Christ, which I want to remind you of some of Jesus's words. He said in the Gospels, I am a what? A gate. So that's a preposition idea of I'm going through a gate or by a gate into a place. And so Jesus's language, even about himself, is saying, I am the way. And being able to say it's through me came out of Jesus's mouth. And so Paul is bringing this in and he's saying to them that the only entry point to this lavish love of God is through Christ. So why does this, me highlighting this preposition matter? I I think it's this. Um, We have to start getting comfortable with the exclusivity of Christ. As much as we desire it to be where everybody um, and everything everybody believes is okay, as long as it's good for them, um, it's not. Because the only way they get that inheritance is in Jesus Christ. But let me remind you of Paul's posture. Paul's posture to the people was humility. He wept over them. He cried over them. He didn't engage in the, you're stupid, because if he had, they would have accused him of that in Acts 19. They said that he hasn't spoken bad about our gods. He hasn't spoken bad about us. He hasn't stolen anything. So his character and his integrity was that of love and compassion. And even if people don't agree with us, let them walk away with them, from us saying, man, you know, I don't agree that Jesus is the only way, but Ellis just loved me to death. They don't want to walk away saying, man, Ellis is an angry pastor. You know, he needs to go pastor Westboro Baptist Church in Kentucky. You know, he's angry. He's going to go petition people's funerals. He's just a mean man. No, when people walked away from Paul, they knew, matter of fact, what he believed about Jesus Christ, but they knew he loved them and that he cared for them. And we read some verses last night about Paul describing to the church in Corinth, the church in Philippi, how he loved them and he knew that they were going to see Jesus face to face someday. And so his motivation was, I know you're going to see him someday and I want you to be ready for it. And so I believe that these prepositions about being in Christ was Paul's way of saying to a city that had every power, that had every God, that had everything that humanity could want in that day and time, he used these prepositions to to force that early church to be reminded of the fact that apart from God, through Christ, we are nothing. And the hope, the healing, the peace, the adoption, and I love this, and I, and I don't want to offend anybody by this, but it says we're pro- promised sonship. So ladies, please don't be offended by that. That's biblical language. Just like men, don't be offended when we're called the bride of Christ, right? We need to kind of get over some of our gender biases to some of the things in Scripture because it's just language from that generation that we need to begin to search and find meaning in. But at this, what, this is what sonship meant in Rome. Somebody that was wealthy said, I want you in my family, and they did everything to make that happen. 
That's what sonship, this Greek word that's defined as sonship, that's what they would have heard. They would have seen it. They would have seen kids adopted into families that they never would have had the privilege of being into. But yet they were getting access to that because of the lavish love of Christ. So everything happens in and through Christ if you didn't catch that. Everything, like Romans 8, everything that happens in us, everything that's going to happen in creation, one day Baltimore is going to be so renewed, we're going to be able to swim in the tributaries and in the harbor. Because God doesn't just care about us, he cares about what he created and called good. So there's a holistic healing if you read the end of Revelations, that's going to happen. And if in eternity we're lucky enough to live close together here and the city of Jerusalem extends all the way to Baltimore, we're going to love living here more so than we love it now. But what we're looking for comes in and through Christ. Okay, so in verse 13, I need to move on. There's a third member of this salvation story. There's a third member of the way God works his love, and it's called the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 And you also were called in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I believe that if we took time to meditate on this, we are going to understand that this is one of the richest claims in all of the New Testament. If it just sounded like a bunch of words to you right now, please mark these verses in your journal. Go back later and say, how is this the richest blessing in all of Scripture? Many of us aren't growing up with confidence nowadays. Many of us are feeling like the culture of our day is pushing us towards cynicism skepticism. Like We're skeptical of people. We're skeptical of Scriptures. We're skeptical of truth. I was even talking with one of my brothers in the room, even as early as this morning. I'm like, wow, I'm going to be talking about this tonight. But one of the things that we have a trouble in our culture, more so than I feel like in many generations in the past, is nobody keeps their word anymore. I mean, we even have written legal documents that are signed and people just walk away from them. Like, uh, I'm not going to be bound by that anymore. And then there's no longer the verbal handshake. Like I used to be able to look at James in the face and make him a promise. And James would know that I would do it. Now he's like, all right, let me promise you. But did you write that down? Well, why do you need me to write it down? Well, to be honest with you, we don't trust each other anymore. Because too many of us have lied to each other. There's too much in our culture about stuff that isn't kept. And this is the same thing in the church. I, I, I'm, I have stopped scrolling my Twitter feed this week because I'm tired of seeing all the news coming out of churches because we're not speaking of a lavish love of God. We're fighting accusations. We're um, not really helping this trust issue. Many of you, you come to church and you hear, oh, there's good news for you, but you're like, eh, no, it's not. And if it was just up to a preacher, a teacher, and the Bible, you're stuck. Because you can read the Bible all you want to. You can hear all the truth you want to. But the Holy Spirit. So when we read these verses and we understand the power of this promise, 
if you are fighting cynicism, skepticism, any ism that's not helping you grow in your faith in God, what you should be praying for this week is for the Holy Spirit. Now let me make a case for that. He's talking here about an encounter with the Holy Spirit, not just right thinking about the Holy Spirit. I don't know if any of you have ever had a moment where you're just like, wow, something supernatural just happened in my heart, in my life. But a lot of us sitting in this room probably would say, I don't know what it feels like to be moved by the Holy Spirit. I don't ever feel power. And I don't believe that that's necessarily because you don't believe in Jesus. But I believe that you stepped into the room, but you kept a foot out of the room and you're not fully in yet. Because you're okay with God loving you and you're okay with Jesus giving you an inheritance, but we're not okay with Jesus being Lord of our life and shaping all of our thinking. And the Holy Spirit comes as a counselor, a teacher, a comforter that guides us to affirm everything that I'm teaching you. So if I am teaching you something that's inaccurate, the Holy Spirit will say, no way. If I'm teaching you something true, you're going to know it in your spirit. And you could hate me all you want to, but you're going to know the Spirit saying, no, that's true. Paul is making a clear case that the Holy Spirit makes clear to you and I the things that are true about the lavish love of God. Many times our salvation... um, we're focused on, well, am I doing enough good deeds? And so we always leave feeling empty, or my salvation has something to do with my right acting or my knowing what to do at the right time, and so all of our identity is tied around our physical behavior. But what Paul is saying here is that you don't have to earn God's love because that's exhausting. You're not earning it anymore. The Holy Spirit guarantees it. Salvation is God's faithfulness to us through the Holy Spirit, not our faithfulness to him. That's why there's a lot of denominations that will go through verses like this and will then begin to teach people that, well, you're never saved or you can lose your salvation. And so every Sunday people are giving their lives back to Jesus because we're trying based upon our deeds when in actuality on our best day we're not good enough. We're not holy One of the things about this passage here at the very end that's subtle but I think is important to point out is the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. So what would that mean to a Jew? You are not just the tabernacle. You are the what? The holy of holies inside of it where a priest once a year if he was lucky, would go in with a rope tied around his leg and would come out alive. Because they tied bells around his robe. And if they stopped jiggling, they knew that the holiness of God was not pleased with the holiness of the man that was in there. And he immediately dropped dead. And they would pull him out. And then imagine the next guy up the next year. And so if we understand this powerful promise And this is what I'm saying to each of you. You are a holy of holy temple that is inhabited by the very Spirit of God. And most days we don't feel that way. And we have got to figure out a way 
to begin to feel like that there is confidence in that. Let me tell you, verse 13, when you believed, you were marked with a seal, not a animal. Sorry, just trying to bring a little humor into the night. It wasn't very good humor. It's a dad joke. Um, but I heard John Tyson, who pastors a church in New York, Manhattan, say this. When he was talking about the seal, this is what a seal would have meant in the first century. Four words. I'd love for you to write them down. Security, authenticity, ownership, and authority. So when a seal was placed on something in the Roman Empire, underneath of that first generation, and a seal would come by, you would look at the seal and be like, wait a minute, that's the seal of Caesar? I'm not stealing that. You might see a seal of a neighbor, because everybody had one, and you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to break that seal because I'm not really fearful of them. But there were seals that were placed on trade items and seals placed on buildings and seals placed on individuals that if you touched them, your security was gone. And the Holy Spirit is a secure symbol on our life that we cannot be touched. I'm coming to him. The next word is authenticity. I don't dabble in many hobbies. Actually, I can't think of a hobby right now other than my kids. Um, that's probably true. So sad. Um, but authenticity here isn't about me letting James see who I really am. Authenticity is this was a mic that Mick Jagger used. And so it has his saliva on it and it has the touch prints on it and it comes with a certificate of authenticity that he used it on such and such date at such and such concert and, no, and, and it is the official microphone of Mick Jagger. Okay, That's the implication of the Holy Spirit saying you're sealed. You have been authenticated you are now in the family of God. The next word is ownership. A seal, and this is very easy for us to understand, a seal in that day would obviously show who has that item. Um, now this is going to sound poorly, but I want you to understand that tattooing in the first century or branding in the first century was much different than the way our slaves in our country were branded in this country. A lot of slaves were treated very well in the first century and chose to be marked as a bondservant or a servant of that master and wanted to be identified with them. And so this idea of being sealed is that the Holy Spirit has branded us, has, has um, marked us so that you and I are, when people look at us like, oh, wow, that's your master? He's the one that owns you. He's the one that loves you. He's the one that you're working for. He's the one that you represent when you go to the market. He's the one you represent when you're going to the temple. He's the one you represent when you go to the seashore. You are sealed in ownership. And the other side of this, with this seal, is authority. And this is the part where 
I want, I mean, I want us to mature in all four of these words, but I am desperate for all of us to mature in this word. Because there's so many of you right now that don't want to talk to your friends about Jesus. You want to schedule an appointment with me to talk to your friends about Jesus. Because you don't feel like you have the authority to do so. But in the Holy Spirit, the seal that is branded onto you, the ways that you're marked, is saying to you that you have authority to represent the Father in heaven. Look at all the words in the New Testament that talk about it. Ambassador, son, um, a soldier. You know, there's so many different terms um, that represent the way that you and I represent Christ in the world because he has given us his authority. And if you question me on that, please go home tonight and read John 14 through John chapter 16 and then go to bed reading John chapter 17. It is going to prove how Jesus said it's better for me to go so the Spirit can come and give you security, give you authenticity, give you ownership, and give you authority. That's what the Holy Spirit has done. And the Spirit is promised to dwell in us. I've talked about that. But then I also love this, that the Spirit is promised to be a deposit as a guarantee. Because there's so many things that are near, as Jesus talked about in the New Testament. He says the kingdom of God is near to you, but you're not yet. And so we're near to our inheritance. But on the days when you wonder if you're ever going to get it, guess what? The Holy Spirit comes knocking. Remember, I got you. I got you deposit. I remember as a kid going to J.C. Penney because my parents couldn't afford to buy the gift the first time to the store. What did they do? Laid it away. Did you guys know that people used to do that? You would go in the store, fill up a cart, and take it to the back and say, "Can I put this on layaway?" And then your parents, once a week or once a month, would go and give them money because they couldn't afford to buy the items in the cart at one time, and so the store would hold them and let you pay for it. And I can remember going with my mom sometimes to pay for something that was on layaway, and sometimes I would actually get to see it. Like, someday, (laughs) the Empire Lego set will end up in my house, right? Because there was the sense of excitement about the fact that it's close, but it's not here yet, but I know it's coming, It's guaranteed. It will be there. The faithfulness of my mom, right? The Holy Spirit does that for us. And so here's the question to put in your journals. Do you believe these promises for you? I can talk to you about them all day long, but if you don't believe it, then I need you to ask the Holy Spirit to say, are these really true? Because the Holy Spirit is vital. I also heard John Tyson say this as well. If the people don't drink of the Spirit of God in your church, they will attempt to wring it out of every other earthly experience. Now, I want to set this in an example for you. Generally, things that you value, things that motivate you, You're not sitting still. I watched some of you during the college playoffs. I watched some of you when you're watching other sporting events. I've even seen some of you at concerts acting like a teenage child. I've seen you 
excited and dancing and doing all these things because where you are at that moment is moving you because you're fully embraced in what is being either sung over you or what's happening on the field or what's happening with the grandstands around you. Some of you, you're motivated by what's going on on social media. Like you, you spend all day long putting your thoughts out there and a few words. And at the end of the day, you go home and you have 50 retweets. And you're like, woo, 50 retweets. You know you social media people. But others of you will tweet all day long and be like, wow, nobody retweeted me. (laughs) Or Facebook likes and dislikes or whatever else there is about Facebook. Some of us are motivated by how many people like our comment or our photo or how many people watch the video I posted or all this kind of stuff. And when it's not where we think it should be, we go away depleted, depleted. Deflated. Some kind of D, but not a bad one. Um, So, sorry. I am tired and I am fasting. So, grace and peace in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But here's another thing that I think also shows some motivation in some of our heart. When the monthly statement of our investment comes in. How moved are we? The E-Trade accounts daily. How moved are we? Do we celebrate big days with celebration and skipping and dancing, but yet when we come to church to talk about the lavish love of God, we can't even generate a smile? The Holy Spirit, when he dwells in the temple of God, will force us to move into this praise posture because of the lavish love of God in our life. We are spiritual beings that need to be spiritually filled because the world that we live in is suffocating us. It's suffocating us. So what do we take away from this tonight? The first thing is this. If you believe in Jesus, you should know beyond a shadow of a doubt with all the assurances that you are set. And I would almost go to say that this is the only place where the spiritual fruit of being confident in your salvation could almost be seen as arrogant. Now, arrogance isn't a good word, but nobody should be able to convince you otherwise that you are in Christ because you're sealed. It's done, no matter what you've done. If we have a proper understanding of God's love, we have a proper understanding of his faithfulness, we should not walk around doubting whether or not we're in Jesus Christ. And so I believe Paul's starting out this letter to the church in Ephesus because the foundation of all of this is the same foundation that's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is, are your feet on the rock of Christ? Because storms are coming. And if your feet are on the rock, you're going to be good on the good days. And if your feet are on the rock, you're going to be good on the bad days. Because nothing can get you off the rock. So we should have assurance. The second thing that I think is important for us tonight is our salvation is not based on how well we cling to God. Our salvation is based on how well he clings to us. Some of your friends need to know that family members, some of you need to believe that tonight. 
And here's the other thing that I want you guys to know based upon where I think Paul's taking this chapter. It is not possible for God to lie. He cannot tell a lie. So if we go back and read this run-on sentence and we highlight every promise made, if God said it because he's the object of the sentence, God cannot tell a lie. Everything that we've discussed tonight is based on this extravagant love of God. So as we go to some time of prayer tonight, I'm not going to ask us to break into groups tonight. There's going to come a couple of teachings um, in the coming nights that that's going to be very appropriate. But tonight, if you need to get with some groups of people, I'm totally for that. If there's something burning in your heart about our city, I would encourage you to go over to the windows as a way of separating yourself from the noise and just face the window and say, God, I'm praying this over our city. I want to pray against this spirit that seems to have control here. But others of us tonight, I want you to stay focused on what we taught you about. What do you believe about the grace of God? Why are you not at peace? Because if we're in Christ, we're going to feel the lavish love of God. If we're in Christ, we're going to be sealed with an assurance that no matter what's happening around me, I am firmly in my Father's love. So let's pray on those things tonight. Father, I come to you on behalf of my brothers and sisters. And I ask, Father, that your spirit would confirm in them what tonight is true. And if there's anything that I've said that is not true, Lord, would your spirit tell them otherwise? But Father, I know for a fact that you love us lavishly. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus did something in his life, death, and resurrection that is beyond our wildest imaginations so that in him and through him we can reach this lavish love of God. And Father, I thank you for your spirit. Even though there's days I wish Jesus could just walk in here and teach for himself, Jesus himself told us it's better that the spirit comes. You can use your spirit in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters here in a better way than if Jesus walked in the room. Father, I still wrestle with that. I still doubt that. Would you help me to become more confident in the fact that the spirit can do more in me right now than if Jesus was still walking around? And so, Father, would you increase the maturity of my brothers and sisters tonight and myself And would the image of God that the enemy is wanting to destroy, would it be on display? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.